Chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for and even prevented. I'm John Chidgey and this is Causality. Causality is supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can by becoming a premium subscriber. Premium subscribers have early access to early release high-quality ad-free episodes as well as bonus episodes and to Causality Explored. You can do this via Patreon or, if you prefer, via our website. Visit engineered.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. 737 MAX Boeing have been manufacturing passenger aeroplanes since 1929, effectively for 90 years. Not only is the 737 Boeing's most popular plane, it's the best-selling commercial jet aircraft in aviation history. The 737 range of aircraft currently has four design generations, of which the first recognised generation had two models, the 737-100 and 737-200, and went into passenger service in April 1968, over 50 years ago. The second generation of 737 is now retrospectively referred to as the classic, and it included the 737-300, 737-400 and 737-500, and the first airplane went into passenger service in November 1984. The third generation of 737s were loosely referred to as the Next Generation, or NG for short, and have been in service since 1997 and includes four models, the 737-600, 700-800, and the 737-900. The fourth and current generation of 737s are referred to as the 737 MAX, and is also available in four variants, the 737 MAX 7, MAX 8, MAX 9, and 737 MAX 10. The first MAX 8 went into passenger service on the 22nd of May 2017, and to date there have been about 5,000 firm orders, and about 400 aircraft delivered to airlines. The MAX 8 was well received and pitched with the concept that its handling would be such that no additional retraining would be required for experienced 737NG pilots. Design decisions made during the MAX's development placed the newer and larger engines further forward on the fuselage, and this contributed to a tendency for the MAX to pitch upwards at higher angles of attack. The AOA, or angle of attack, sometimes called the alpha angle in aerodynamics, is the angle between the cord line of the wing of a fixed-wing aircraft and a vector representing the relative motion between the aircraft and the atmosphere. In reality, since wings are flexible by design, the cord line is simplified to the root of the wing, which is a line from the centre of the leading edge to the tip of the closest point of attachment to the fuselage of the aircraft. The relative motion vector can be equally difficult to define definitively, so that's usually a horizontal line along the length of the bottom of the fuselage. In order to ensure the handling mimicked the previous generation under high angle of attack conditions, a new control mechanism was developed specifically for the 737 MAX, and it was called the Maneuver Characteristic Augmentation System, or MCAS for short. Its goal was to ensure that under high angle of attack, the automatic trim system would be used by MCAS to counteract the natural upward pitching of the aircraft by trimming the nose slightly downward. MCAS has been referred to as a system that's designed to provide handling qualities for the pilot that meets pilot preferences. Now, with that basic history, let's talk about the MAX incidents. With the history of aviation and the memory of the comet crashes, refer episode 10 of this podcast, a single incident would have been a tragedy. However, to date, there have been two crashes of the Boeing 737 MAX aeroplane, and with only a few hundred in active service, that's alarming. The first occurred on the 29th of October in 2018, Lion Air Flight 610. The second occurred four and a half months later on the 10th of March 2019, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302. Whilst the preliminary findings of the Flight 302 incident investigations suggest several commonalities and a suspected common root cause with the Lion Air Flight 610, only the full report for Flight 610 was released to the public as of the date of this episode recording. For this reason, it will be the sole focus of this episode specifically. Flight 610. PT Lion Mentari Airlines, otherwise known as Lion Air, Flight 610 was a domestic passenger flight from Sakanohata International Airport, Jakarta, to Dapati Amir Airport, Pankal Penang. 
There were 181 passengers and eight crew on board. The captain, Balve Sanasia, was 31 years old, had been with Lion Air for seven years and had 6,028 hours of flight experience, with 5,176 of them on a Boeing 737. The first officer, known only as Harvino, was 41 years old, had 5,174 hours of flight experience, with 4,286 of them on a Boeing 737, for both, albeit on the older NG models. At 6.20 and 1 second in the morning local time, Flight 610 began takeoff. Only 31 seconds later, the left column stick shaker activated and accompanied multiple unusual discrepancy alarms being presented in the cockpit. Having passed V1 speed already, that's the speed at which a takeoff could still be safely aborted at this point, having passed V1, it couldn't be aborted, and hence the captain pushed ahead. At 6.20am and 40 seconds, the aircraft was in the air. Five seconds after becoming airborne, the first officer, Harvino, queried the captain about the alert indication for IAS disagree, which is instrument airspeed, and whether he intended to return to the airport. The captain continued climbing and didn't respond. At 6.21 and 12 seconds, the first officer queried the captain about the next alert indication for altitude disagree, noting that the altimeter on the captain's primary flight display, or PFD, indicated 340 feet, and on the first officer's PFD, it indicated 570 feet, which the captain acknowledged, however, continued to climb. At 6.21 and 28 seconds, the first officer requested the tower confirm their altitude, responding 900 feet. However, the captain's PFD read 790 feet, and the first officer's read 1,040 feet. At 6.22 and 4 seconds, the captain adjusted the flaps from position 5, that's a 14-degree angle, and that's pretty standard for a takeoff flap setting, to position 1, which is 8 degrees, on a recommendation from the first officer. By 6.24 and 27 seconds, having attempted different flap positions and experiencing a very erratic climb to reach their current target altitude of 5,000 feet, the aircraft finally reached that 5,000 feet, although on the captain's PFD it said it was 4,900 feet and the first officer's it was 5,200. At 6.24 and 31 seconds, the first officer advised the captain he was unable to locate the airspeed unreliable checklist in the manual. At 6.25 and 3 seconds, the captain commanded aircraft nose up or ANU trim for 5 seconds in total in two applications. At 6.25 and 13 seconds, the flap started travelling from position 1 to position 0, which is fully up, and reached that position, which is position 0, 14 seconds later. At 6.25 and 17 seconds, the first officer stated 10.1 and began reading the airspeed unreliable checklist, having finally located it on page 10.1 of the Quick Reference Handbook, or QRH. At 6.25 and 27 seconds, the aircraft nose down, or AND trim, was activated automatically by the MCAS system for two seconds before the captain realised, and it was interrupted by the captain as he then commanded ANU trim for six seconds. The pitch trim recorded at this point was 6.19 units. In the next 60 seconds, MCAS commanded a nose-down trim via automatic AND trim on four more occasions, with each time the captain overriding and counter-correcting applying ANU trim each time to point the nose back up again. MCAS, however, continued to activate at 6.26 and 45 seconds, 59 seconds, 6.27 and 15 seconds, 29 seconds, 44 seconds, 6.28 and 1 second, 22 seconds, 30 seconds, 44 seconds, 59 seconds, 6.29 at 14 seconds, 38 seconds, 53 seconds, 6.30 and 6 seconds, 18 seconds and 38 seconds. And each time it activated, the captain applied a longer ANU command to maintain a pitch angle above 5 units for most of that time. At 6.30am and 48 seconds, the captain asked the first officer to take over control of the aircraft, which the first officer acknowledged six seconds later. At 6.31, exactly, the automatic nose-down trim activated for eight seconds. The pitch trim changed this time from 5.4 to 3.4 units, which the first officer counteracted with only one second of aircraft nose-up trim, leaving the pitch at only 3.5 units. 
At 6.31 and 15 seconds, MCAS activated again for about three seconds until it was interrupted when the first officer commanded an ANU trim for one second. The pitch, however, had dropped down to 2.9 units, and then applying ANU trim for another four seconds, the pitch climbed back to 3.4 units. At this time, the first officer's column force sensor recorded 65 pounds of back pressure due to the first officer pulling it back in an attempt to lift the nose. At 6.31 and 27 seconds, MCAS activated again for 8 seconds. This time, the pitch trim had dropped to 1.3 units. The first officer's control column sensor force had increased to 82 pounds of back pressure. At 6.31 and 43 seconds, MCAS activated for 4 more seconds. The pitch trim changed to only 0.3 units and the first officer's control column sensor now recorded 93 pounds of back pressure as the first officer attempted to pull the plane upward. The first officer did apply additional ANU trim to override the MCAS. However, he did not apply it for as long as the captain had, and the pitch of the aircraft dropped each time MCAS activated and sent the aircraft into a sharp descent. At 6.31am and 46 seconds, the first officer commanded ANU trim for two seconds, and the altitude indication on the captain's display had dropped to 3,200 feet, or 3,600 feet on the first officer's display. The rate of descent was more than 10,000 feet per minute, and at 6.31 and 51 seconds, the audible alert terrain followed by sink rate and the overspeed clacker all sounded in the cockpit. At 6.31 and 53 seconds, MCAS activated the A&D trim, and it remained applied. Two seconds later the aircraft impacted the water surface and disintegrated, with its engines driving at high throttle at an estimated speed of 380 knots, 700 kilometers an hour or 435 miles per hour. It had essentially flown at high speed directly into the ocean. The impact was so significant that even the strongest components of the aircraft fractured and split, and there were no survivors. Prior to Flight 610, there were several days of issues leading up to this incident on this aircraft. In October of 2019, the official report by KNKT, Comité National Kesselmatan Transportasi, roughly translated as the National Transportation Safety Committee, or NTSC in English, was released. There was another report produced by the JATR, that's the Joint Authorities Technical Review, focused on the 737 MAX flight control system following both Lion Air Flight 610 and Ethiopian Air Flight 302. That was released on the 11th of October 2019. The basis of the information that follows is predominantly from the KNKT official report, with references to the JATA report, where noted. On the 26th of October, three days before the incident, the same aircraft running flight LNI-2748 from Tianjin, China to Manado, Indonesia, the aircraft flight maintenance log or AFML recorded both SPD speed and alt altitude flags were set on the captain's display in place of airspeed and altitude indicated values. That's not normal. The engineer in Monado checked the onboard maintenance function or OMF and they love their acronyms in the airline industry and subsequently performed the recommended fault isolation manual or IFIM Self-test of the store management, your damper, that's the SMYD, for position 1, which correlates with the captain's display error. The maintenance log entry stated that the test passed and the engineer cleared the alert message, releasing the aircraft for its next flight. On the 27th of October, a few days before the incident, the same aircraft flew from Manado, Indonesia, to Denpasar, Indonesia, on flight LNI-775 with the same SPD and ALT flags reported on the captain's display again. The engineer in Denpasar found an additional error message in the OMF this time, AD data invalid, detected by SMYD position 1. However, upon rerunning the same self-test that was run in Monado previously, it came back, passed, and the aircraft was once again cleared for its next flight. Later that day, the same aircraft performed a round trip between Denpasar and Lombok with flights LNI-828 and returning on LNI-829, this time with no SPD or ALT flags indicated on either flight. Later the same day, the aircraft flew from Denpasar to Bernardo, once again showing SPD and ALT flags, however additionally indicating speed trim and mark trim alerts, 
the engineer in Monado reviewed the OMF and noted a log entry for stall warning sys left. And upon repeating the self-test on SYMD1 for the first time in three tests, it failed. A series of additional diagnostic results led to the engineer conducting the built-in test of equipment or BITE through the Flight Management Computer, FMC, diagnosing that the AOA signal fail was the likely cause of the errors. To recover from this, the engineer reset the circuit breakers of the AC, DC and EXC left ADIRU, that's the Air Data Inertial Reference Unit, power supply, reconducted the self-test and this time it passed. In other words, they reset everything and tested it and it passed this time. Interestingly, the maintenance procedure for the error consisted of 14 steps, including a wiring check. However, the wiring checks were not conducted on account of the heavy rain and thunderstorms at the time these tests were undertaken. Instead, the engineer just plugged and unplugged the internal connectors but didn't find anything suspicious. The following morning, on the 28th of October, the engineer met with the flight crew to go over the findings. They were the same crew that were on the same plane from yesterday and asked that more be done to diagnose the faults with the engineer suggesting that Denpasar would be better equipped to deal with the problem. On the 28th of October, the same aircraft flew from Manado, Indonesia, to Denpasar, Indonesia, on flight LNI-775, and once again the same SPD and ALT flags reported on the captain's display, now along with speed trim and mark trim. And when the engineer and Denpasar checked the log, found the same stall warning SIS left alarm. The engineer once again then re-ran the bite, with the same result as in Monado, reset the circuit breakers, just like before, re-ran the self-test, and the bite passed again. However, in the log, recorded their intention to replace the angle of attack sensor to try and address these recurring faults. So after so many flights, so many alarms, resets, and not very thorough wiring checks, finally, the decision to replace the AOA sensor was made. But unfortunately... They didn't have any spare parts at that airport. So the engineer grounded the plane until a spare part could be flown in from Batam. The part arrived at 6pm local time and the engineer subsequently removed the suspected faulty instrument with the replacement part. The aircraft maintenance manual requires a calibration be performed of the AOA sensor upon being fitted by either one of two methods. Specialised test equipment or using a bite built-in test function. Since Denpasar didn't have the specialised test equipment, the engineer had no option but to perform the bite test method, whereby the AOA vane is set to fully up, centre and fully down positions, and each is recorded by the SMYD to ensure it's correctly calibrated. There was no written record of the readings during the test, nor after the test, other than a log entry, no current faults following the bite. During the investigation, the engineer provided several photos they claimed were taken of the captain's primary flight display after the AOA sensor had been replaced following the testing. However, the investigators determined that they weren't. The time shown on the display was prior to the replacement of the AOA sensor even arriving in Denpasar, and further investigation showed the photos were actually of a completely different aircraft. So the aircraft was then released back into service at 8.30pm local time that day, and then from Denpasar to Jakarta as flight LNI-043 at 10.56pm. However, the aircraft indicated IAS disagree and ALT disagree after takeoff, and importantly, the stick shaker was activating. The captain, pilot flying during the initial climb, transferred control to the first officer and ran through an instrument checklist and determined that they had faulty instruments. He ran through three non-normal checklists for airspeed unreliable, altitude disagree, and runaway stabilizer during which the stabiliser trim cutout switch was re-engaged, leading to an aircraft nose down, after which it was disengaged again. During the climb, the first officer, then pilot flying, indicated that the aircraft was too heavy to hold back, suggesting that they were unable to trim to consistently keep the nose up. After three nose down actions and the first officer's concerns, the captain cut out the stabiliser trim and they were able to complete the entire remainder of the flight using the manual trim, albeit with the stick shaker going off more or less continuously for the whole trip. During these events, the captain radioed Pan Pan to the Denpasar approach air traffic controller. However, despite the stick shaker and manual trim, they decided to continue flying rather than return to Denpasar.
Choosing to continue a flight with a stick shaker continually activated is very unusual. Boeing's historical records state that reported stick shaker activations during or just after takeoff on a 737 have occurred only 27 times between 2001 and 2018, which is 17 years at an average of three instances every two years. Given how many planes there are and how many, how many flights there are in that time, that's very rare. Now, in those cases where the stick shakers have activated on or just after takeoff, the flight crews elected to return to their departure airport on 18 of those flights and three additional flights diverted to a nearby airport. So when you combine that shaker with the runaway stabilizer issues that were diagnosed by the flight crew, the decision to continue flying seems even more unusual. The handover notes are also interesting. After landing, the captain wrote up a brief summary of the problems they'd experienced during the flight. What was mentioned, IAS disagree, ALT disagree, field diff press alerts. What was not mentioned was the runaway stabiliser, the stick shaker, and it was not mentioned anywhere that there was an application of the stab trim cutout. Those are the guarded switches that turn off the automatic trim stabiliser, and hence any detail on manual trim or manual control during the flight and landing wasn't in the handover notes. The investigation suggested that the detail left out of the report was likely due to the pilot's misunderstanding of the interrelationship between the effects experienced during the flight and the system failures that caused those effects. That said, in order for engineers on the ground to take the correct maintenance steps, there's their reliance on a thorough report from pilots following every flight for any abnormalities. After landing, the engineer in Jakarta then flushed the left pitot tube and the static ADM, that's the air data module, uh, cleaned some electrical connectors and then following a self-test that passed again, the aircraft was released back into service at 2.30am on the 29th of October 2018. The next flight for this aircraft would depart but would never arrive. The investigation tested the removed AOA sensor and found that it was experiencing an open circuit condition intermittently, but below 60 degrees Celsius, that's 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So it was, in fact, the cause of the earlier intermittent faults from the days leading up to the incident and the instrument changeout. The investigation was unable to locate the actually finally fitted AOA sensor from the wreckage. However, they were able to trace the history of that instrument. These items aren't cheap, and they come with a warranty, so it had actually failed in August of 2017 when it was removed from a 737-900 extended range, and after a lengthy series of tests by Extra Aerospace in Florida, it was repaired by Extra and recalibrated. The AOA instrument was then ready to be returned to Lion Air to go back into service, and it did so on the 3rd of November 2017. From there, that component waited in the Lion Air stores at Batam and waited until it was sent for and installed on the aircraft that would ultimately crash in the incident. So what are angle of attack sensors? There are two angle of attack sensors, more commonly known as alpha vanes, fitted to every 737 on either side of the nose of the plane, directly beneath a pair of pitot tubes on each side. Their positioning is similar to that on the 737 Next Generation. The AOA sensors pivot around a cent central axis, with a small reverse-swept blade-like fin often simply referred to as the vane. Unlike an aerofoil, the fin operates just like a wind vane, and meaning that as in the vane is blown backwards to a position where it has the minimum cross-sectional wind resistance, which is directly in the wake direction of the airflow presented to it. Whilst all the sensors have their limitations, including the inherent static friction lag, also referred to as stiction, uh, when there's a change of angle, as the force of the airflow has to overcome static friction before the pivot will allow it to actually turn. All sensors still require calibration prior to use, and regularly during the lifetime of the sensor. The AOA sensor in this case, its part number was 0861FL1. It's a common part with a standard design, and it is in fact, in most respects, quite unremarkable. But that might be something worth exploring further another time. So let's talk about MCAS. A lot has been written and described about MCAS being the cause of this incident. There's no question it's a big contributing factor. So before we can determine why it did what it did on flight 610, we need to understand how it works by adjusting trim and quickly about trim. 
The horizontal tail wing elevator on the aeroplane uses a trim tab at the rear edge of the wing that's adjusted up and down to balance or trim the aircraft to a neutral flying position. MCAS, as said previously, is only present on the 737 MAX range of aircraft and it becomes active during a manual, that is to say, not autopilot. In other words, autopilot is definitely not engaged. The flaps must be fully up in position zero when the angle of attack value received by the master flight control computer exceeds a set point value. Now, the set point value is based on the mark number of the aircraft and it goes between two predefined limits that were set during design. Once it's been activated, MCAS provides a higher rate automatic trim command that is both faster than a human manual AND or ANU command to move the trim stabilizer predominantly AND, which is down. The magnitude of the AND command is based on the angle of attack and the mark of the aircraft. In its intended operational state, MCAS is designed assuming that a non-normal maneuver was executed by a pilot in manual that resulted in a high angle of attack. MCAS's goal is to avoid that high angle of attack, and hence, once the angle of attack falls below a reset set point, MCAS would command the trim stabilizer automatic up to its original position, which then resets the MCAS control cycle. Again, this is its goal. At any time, the trim stabilizer inputs can be stopped or reversed by the pilots by using their yoke-mounted electric stabilizer trim switches. So at any time these ANU-AND trim switches are activated, MCAS resets provided that those switches are applied continuously for five seconds. The intention of this reset behavior following a pilot-initiated ANU or AND command was based on an assumption that pilots would use the trim switches to completely return the aircraft to a neutral trim. If the original elevated angle of attack condition persisted for more than five seconds following an MCAS flight control law reset, the MCAS flight control law would command yet another stabilizer nose-down trim command using a magnitude based on the angle of attack and mark speed sensed at that moment in time. In other words, even if MCAS's cycle has initiated, been interrupted and completed, after a short time, if it continues to see a high angle of attack under those conditions, it'll just reactivate again and again and again, without any quantity-driven or accumulated activation limitation. So for some systems that might have an activation count limit, as in once it's activated five times, then it'll wait a period of time before resetting the counter, or it'll throw it back into manual control, but not for MCAS. On all 737 models, control yoke, that's also called the control column, uh, those cutout switches will interrupt any trim stabilizer commands, whether they come from the autoflight system or the manually activated trim switches, provided that they're in the direction that's opposite to the elevator command. So in other words, if I'm pulling up, I can trim down. If I'm, pulling, if I'm pushing down, I can trim up, if that makes sense. On the next gen and the max, two column cutout switching modules, one for each control column, are actuated when the control columns are pushed or pulled away from the hands-off position. When they are actuated, the control cutout switching modules will interrupt the electrical signals to the stabilizer trim electric motor that are in opposition to the elevator command, essentially stopping them. Now that is so far so sensible. But the MCAS function, however, because it requires the trim stabilizer to move the nose down in opposition to the control column command, it's assuming that the aircraft is approaching a high angle of attack to allow MCAS to actually function as it was designed to, in that case, the control column cutout switches function in the first officer switching module was modified to inhibit the aft column cutout switch when MCAS was active. So what that means is that this allows an aircraft nose down trim stabilizer command even if there is an aircraft nose up control column input. Once MCAS is no longer active, the normal column cutout function in the stabilizer nose-down direction is reinstated. Now, this is different from the previous generation and was never actually explained to any of the pilots. MCAS commanded its trim output based on an equation with a maximum of 2.5 degrees at low mark down to a maximum of 0.65 degrees at high mark. Automatic speed trim at 0.27 degrees per second 
for up to 9.26 seconds of activation time. So, how does the flight control computer determine the angle of attack? Well, via the angle of attack sensor. An interesting thing about the design of the control system in the 737 MAX is that there are two flight control computers. The speed trim system that includes MCAS is a flight control law that's exec executed from the flight control computer, but the speed trim system is only active in the master flight control computer at that time. When the aircraft powers up initially, the master flight control computer defaults to the left side flight control computer, and then it will alternate between the left and right FCCs for each subsequent flight. The position of the flight director switches doesn't impact which FCC is set as the master. The flight control computers receive their process values from sensors via multiple systems, including the Air Data Inertial Reference System, or ADIRS, which is where the angle of attack inputs come from, with the left ADIRU from the left AOA sensor and the right ADIRU from the right AOA sensor. So, from all of this, we can just quickly summarize. MCAS is a flight control law executed in a single flight control computer only, based on an AOA angle of attack value from a single sensor. During Flight 610, being the first power-up of the aircraft for that day, the master flight control computer had defaulted to the left side, therefore using the left sensor, which was the sensor that was giving incorrect readings. There are three causes I'd like to focus on, though admittedly there are many more, but I think these are key. Firstly, and in not necessarily in order of importance, the incorrect replacement of the AOA sensor. Some sensors are self-calibrating, whilst others require a precisely followed calibration procedure. I've calibrated a lot of instruments in my career, though not in the last four years. Admittedly, things don't change that much. And when you calibrate something, you need to have a verified reference, perhaps multiple, and in the case of the AOA sensor, there were three reference positions, fully up, fully down, and center position reference points. Even if the procedure was followed correctly, though, and even if the calibration method used wasn't accurate enough, the possibility that the sensor was already faulty was always an option. It was clearly a refurbished unit. It wasn't new, and the engineer would have noticed that when they were fitting it. Something was clearly wrong with something after a full return flight with a stick shaker going off. Now, for a device that's used traditionally for stall detection, you'd think the engineer would have not just calibrated it, but retested it to be sure and not accepted a single error, and maybe even asked for a brand new replacement instead if there was an error found. The fact that they supplied incorrect photos after the event suggests that they knew they'd cut a corner when they were reinstalling the instrument. But that said, it could have been an innocent mistake, sending the wrong photo or maybe misremembering depending upon whether you want to give benefit of the doubt. Given the time of day it was fitted, though, and how short a time it was before the aircraft took off only two and a half hours later, there may have been time pressure to get it running again, and they overlooked the non-standard calibration process. Clearly, there's limitations to what the built-in test can do regarding calibration. Either way, the lesson's clear. Calibrate and check every time, and be thorough, and don't trust refurbished units either. I've been caught out by that myself. Replacing a broken instrument with a miscalibrated instrument is a waste of time. You haven't fixed anything. What happened to that instrument is definitely worth exploring more. Secondly, lack of updated training and training manuals regarding MCAS for pilots. So there was no mention of MCAS anywhere in the manual or the training materials for the 737 MAX series. Most of the pilots of the MAX aircraft weren't even aware that MCAS existed let alone how it worked. The pilots operating the 737 MAX must have been completely baffled. Why does the nose keep trimming down? I've set my trim. I should be maintaining where I left it. Of course, you could say that the pilots of the immediately prior flight for that aircraft were able to successfully pilot and land the exact same plane with the exact same fault. The other flight, they applied the stability trim cutout switches and these are the guarded switches that disable the automatic electric trim, and that's found in all 737s, even the previous generation with which they were more familiar. However, it was in fact the only way to stop MCAS from functioning completely. Doing so meant they had to trim the aircraft manually using the manual trim wheels. Now, these trim wheels are physically smaller in diameter than the previous generation 737s, making them harder to turn. 
The other problem with full manual trim is that if there is a large amount of downforce on the tail with the smaller wheel, it's physically impossible to move the trim manually. Several pilots of 737 Maxes informally noted following the incident that they had pushed their plane into a slightly deeper descent to alleviate downforce on the tail, allowing easier manual trim wheel adjustments, something that would work if you had enough altitude to get away with it. Not really ideal, though, let's be honest. Finally, and perhaps most concerningly, the design of MCAS as a whole. Fly-by-wire systems have to decide at what point they will hand back control to the human. How is it that something seemingly so critical to a safely operating aircraft relied on a single sensor commanded by a single computer? Whenever we're designing a safety-critical system, we have to assess the worst-case outcome and work backwards to design something that meets the reliability requirements to ensure that that worst-case outcome is avoided. So those are the principles in their very basic form, and they apply to process safety and aircraft safety systems as well. In process safety, we use HAZOPs and LOPERs. In electronics, system analysis, and in this case, particularly aircraft design, they use FAMIA, or sometimes also called FAMICA. That's Failure Modes Effects Analysis, or uh, Failure Modes Effects Criticality Analysis for FAMICA. A common tool used across all industries is the fault tree analysis, and you also then develop an overall functional hazard analysis, or FHA. That's if there weren't enough analyses for you. Basically, it works like this. Because FAMIAs, FAMICAs, FTAs all take time and cost money, they're only applied for outcomes that are assessed as hazardous or catastrophic. In their response, Boeing indicated that FTAs were only performed on the functional hazard analysis events that were determined to be either catastrophic or hazardous, which is consistent with the guidance in SAE ARP 4761, which is an SAE international document called Guidelines and Methods for Conduction, the Safety Assessment Process on Civil Airborne Systems and Equipment. So, this is technically correct. So, what did the functional hazard analysis actually find? Well, before we look at that, we need to understand what the classifications even mean. The FAA releases advisory circulars, which describe various acceptable means for showing compliance to the Federal Aviation Regulations. The advisory circular AC25.1309-1A was released on the 21st of June 1988, and it detailed three failure conditions minor, major, and catastrophic for guidance when categorizing failures. The Joint Aviation Requirements, JAR-25, and that, by the way, is developed by the Joint Aviation Authorities, that's now EASA, which is the European Aviation Safety Agency. They, they produce AMJ-25.1309, which is Advisory Material Joint, and that was dated the 1st of October 2000. That amended the original advisory circular and amended those categories and split them out, particularly item two under major, creating a new intermediate category called hazardous. So you could also argue technically there's a fifth category for which there is no safety effect. So, And it was against these five categories that Boeing had assessed MCAS during the design stages of the 737 MAX. So let's talk about what these actually are. No safety effect, obviously, has no effect on safety. Minor, failure conditions which would not significantly reduce airplane safety and which involve crew actions that are well within their capabilities. Minor failure condition may include, for example, a slight reduction in safety margins or functional capability, a slight increase in crew workload such as routine flight plan changes or some inconvenience to occupants. Okay, so that's minor. Major, Failure conditions that would reduce the capability of the airplane or the ability of the crew to cope with adverse operating conditions to the extent that there would be, for example, 1. A significant reduction in the safety margins or functional capabilities, a significant increase in crew workload or in conditions impairing crew efficiency, or some discomfort to occupants, possibly including injuries. At this point... The original had a point number two. In more severe cases, a large reduction in key safety margins or functional capabilities, higher workload or physical distress, such that the crew could not be relied on to perform its tasks accurately or completely or adverse effect on occupants. 
So when they reviewed this on the 1st of October 2000, that second number they split out and essentially that became the definition for hazardous. They also tweaked the wording a bit. Hazardous. Failure conditions which would reduce the capability of the aeroplane or the ability of the crew to cope with adverse operating conditions to the extent that there would be either a large reduction in safety margins or functional capabilities, physical distress or a high workload such that the flight crew cannot be relied upon to perform their tasks accurately or completely, or serious or fatal injury to a relatively small number of occupants. Okay, that's hazardous. And then finally, catastrophic. Failure conditions which would prevent continued safe flight and landing. Okay, so those are the classifications. So what did the MCAS functional hazard analysis determine? So, the FHA for MCAS highlighted six hazards relating to its operation. There were two minors, loss of MCAS function, all flight phases, normal flight envelope. Stabilizer trim runaway with MCAS operating, cruise flight phase, ETOPS, that's extended operations. There were three majors, loss of MCAS function, all flight phases, operating flight envelope, the next, uncommanded MCAS function operation to a maximum authority, which was 0.6 degrees, all flight phases, normal flight envelope. And thirdly, uncommanded MCAS function operation equivalent to three-second missed trim, all flight phases, normal flight envelope. So far, so major. And one hazardous. So this is an uncommanded MCAS function, all flight phases in the operating flight envelope. Now, we know that no fault tree analysis was done, but that list included one hazardous item. So it should have been done. So why wasn't it done? Now, this, in order to understand this one, we have to cover what flight envelopes are. So FAA Advisory Circular 25-7C Appendix 5 defines probabilities for flight envelopes. It's usually denoted as X subscript E in equations. And it describes the the three as as follows. Normal, generally associated with routine, operational, and or prescribed conditions, either all engines operating or one engine inoperative. Probability, 10 to the zero. Operational, generally considered with warning onset, outside of the normal flight envelope. Probability, 10 to the minus three. And the limit, generally associated with airplane design limits or EFCS protection limits. The probability, 10 to the minus five. Just one more advisory circular. FAA AC 25.1309-1A does also define those probabilities as follows. Extremely improbable, one in a billion, 10 to the nine or less, 10 to the minus nine or less. Improbable, extremely remote, one in 10 million, which is 10 to the minus seven or less. Improbable, remote, one in 100,000 or 10 to the minus five or less and no worse than probable, which is up to 1 in 100,000, or 10 to the minus 5. Table 3-6, which is the most severe consequence used for classification in the FAA Safety Systems Handbook, revision December 2000, shows the probabilities quantitatively and descriptively against the FAR and JAR regulations. It's very handy. There's a link in the show notes. So, how do we put all this together? In the system safety analysis, Boeing had taken a discount or a credit, if you want to call it that, for the 10 to the minus 3 reduction from an operational flight envelope probability and applied that probability to the hazardous probability of 10 to the minus 7 to reduce the probability to that which essentially becomes the major probability range. Now, in the JATR report into Flight 610, Observation 3.2-A, and I quote, The intent of the probability of 1E-3 for the OFE in the HQRM is to select flight test cases for handling quality evaluation, not to support the quantitative aspects of 25.1309 or 25.672C compliance, end quote. So in essence, the system safety analysis took credit for a flight envelope probability to reduce the hazardous requirement to a major requirement just based on the flight envelope probability. And hence, they no longer needed to do an FTA. And because there was no FTA, there was no FEMIA either. 
because they had essentially downgraded one classification that would have required them to do it by using a probability assessment that wasn't directly intended to be used for that kind of credit. Disturbingly, in their response, Boeing indicated that this was, and I quote, consistent with FAA regulations and the Boeing process, end quote, which begs a subsequent question, what else have they downgraded that we don't know about? The standards state a single-threaded system, and that is a system that has a single chain of sensors, cabling, computation, and actuation, is satisfactory for a major malfunction rate of 10 to the minus 5. However, a hazardous malfunction rate requires more than a single-threaded system. Some redundancy is necessary. Single-threaded is an interesting terminology, but what I'm more familiar with is sensor redundancy using voting systems with a minimum viable sensor requirement. For example, 2 out of 3 or a two out of three system that requires two out of three sensors to be functional in order to safely control. In this case, the outcome should have been a two out of two system, most likely, though a thorough analysis would determine what that really should have been. The problem is the flight control computer can't be sure which sensor is going to be accurate. They would need to both agree within a set deviation of error between the two instruments to know that they could trust the readings and select either a primary or an average, depending upon how you want to do it. Again, do the analysis. The key point here is that if the deviation is too high, you don't know which sensor to trust, so you can't trust either of them. You throw up an alert and disable MCAS. Feed that back to the pilot and you turn it off. If the aircraft is actually pitching up into a stall, the pilots would still have the shaker to warn them. Even though one of them might be incorrectly shaking, it's better than a nosedive. Manual trim still exists to rectify that, provided the wheel can actually be turned physically. That's just not how Boeing designed this MCAS to work, though. Interestingly, and not as widely reported, was that when Boeing adjusted the design parameters during the development of the MAX, they pushed the 0.6-degree maximum activation to 2.5 degrees at low mark speeds. The interesting part is that the FHA actually was revisited. However, the results remained unchanged. There is some question as to why it occurred and how that's even possible, given the change was significant when they changed it from 0.6 to 2.5. That's four times as much, which means that any actuation changes can be far more significant under MCAS. However, there weren't any changes to the classifications. I know we're running long, but you know what? I'm not done. Something else is really bugging me. Why move the wings and the cells forward and hiring the fuselage on the MAX in the first place? Because if they hadn't have done that, they wouldn't have needed MCAS at all. To understand this, we have to go back to the beginning. The original 737 design from the 1960s was intentionally designed to be low to the ground. It had folding stairs attached to the fuselage because it was designed in an era before jetways or sky bridges were standard at most airports and and ground crew were fewer and much further between. Ground crews in the 1960s physically handled all the baggage, so having less height to lift luggage into and out of the aircraft's cargo bay was another plus to it being so low to the ground. The second generation of the 737s, specifically first seen on the 737-300, introduced an unusual design tweak to get around this. It was a, a flat spot on the bottom of the engine nacelle to help improve the ground clearance with a slightly larger engine. The pilots used to call it the hamster pouch. In future models, little tweaks like that weren't going to cut it. With further pushes from clients and competitors to reduce the 737's operational costs, the workhorse of the Boeing family needed to carry people in a similar size aircraft but use less fuel in so doing. The only option was to change out the engines for something better, and from the original Pratt & Whitney JT-8s through to the 737NG's engines, the CFM 56-7Bs, they were outclassed by the final choice. They went with the CFM Leap 1B engine. LEAP stands for Leading Edge Aviation Propulsion, and like the 56-7Bs, they're manufactured by CFM International. That's a 50-50 joint venture between GE Aviation and Safran Aircraft Engines, formerly called uh, SNECMA. The JT-8s had a 49.2-inch inner fan diameter, growing to 61 inches on the 56-7Bs, but the LEAP 1Bs were larger again at 69 inches. Whilst the detail of engine design is really interesting, got to draw a line somewhere. But in short, 
the larger air intakes of the higher operating pressure will lead to running hotter, which requires more exotic metal alloys, but ultimately gives you much greater efficiency. When compared to the top-performing CFM56 series engine, the LEAP series are approximately 15% more fuel efficient. They create less engine noise in the process and also, as a bonus, have less carbon dioxide emissions. So that's huge, really huge for aircraft operators. The same flight route and instantly cheaper on fuel will offset the rising cost of aviation fuel and keeps them competitive in the industry overall. And in order, therefore, to accommodate these larger engines and maintain their minimum ground clearance, Boeing had no choice but to redesign the pylons, which is the structure that holds the engine to the wing. They extended them further forward and higher to provide the 17-inch of ground clearance that they needed. And in addition to, uh, as a result of these changes, Boeing also put in a higher nose landing gear. With so many changes, you have to wonder, why not just do a completely new aircraft design? Well, the truth is that certifying a completely new design is a lot harder with stricter regulations in place today than they were in the past. Hence, a derivative, as it's called, aircraft, a derivative aircraft, has many design details that mightn't comply if evaluated completely today, but because those design details have already been approved, they are grandfathered in. Hence, it's not just a little bit cheaper, it is a lot cheaper to create a derivative model of an aircraft than a whole new model, as it's cheaper by avoiding a lot of qualification testing and certification that isn't necessary due to grandfathering. Therefore, it made financial sense for Boeing to push the 737 base design as far as they thought they could. Of course, in reality, the changes to how the aircraft handled were significant enough that some retraining should have been warranted. MCAS wouldn't have been free to design, to develop or test it, and Boeing didn't do it because they were bored. They did it so that the pilots wouldn't need retraining on the new MAX aircraft, and that was widely advertised as a selling point. So why then was that such a big deal? Why avoid retraining and why exclude it from the training manuals? So let's talk a bit about that for a sec. Going to take a sample of two US airlines. Southwest Airlines, as of September 2019, they have 9,700 pilots and their entire fleet is 737-700s, 511 of them, 800s, 207 of them, and 34 MAX 8s. Meaning out of all of their pilots, about 440 would need to be retrained to pilot the 34 MAXs they have in service. American Airlines, as of January 2020, have 4,200 pilots for their fleet of 737s. That includes 737-800s, there's 304 of those, and 24 MAX 8s, out of a total of 943 aircraft overall, meaning that about 310 pilots would need to be retrained with the 24 MAXs in service. Now, if your retraining takes about four hours in a simulator and a day and a half, let's say, of other training, which is classified as ground duties, if we take the lowest entry-level pay grade hourly rate of $20 US an hour, that's about a quarter of a million US dollars just for those two airlines. And that's with their fleet and their current level of max aircraft. You double their respective max fleet, you double the amount of money you need to spend on retraining. So the ultimate sales pitch from Boeing was the 737 MAX is up to 15% more fuel efficient for the same size aircraft. There is no retraining cost for airline pilots to fly the new plane either. No wonder the order books were full for years to come when it was first announced and pitched like that to airlines around the world. Sounded like a really good deal for sure. Let's talk about the fallout from Lion Air 610. On the 1st of November 2018, the flight data recorder was recovered from the wreckage as well as the landing gear. However, the cockpit voice recorder was still missing. On the 3rd of November, a recovery diver, Cyril Anto, died while searching the wreckage for the CVR. On the 6th of November, Boeing issued an operational bulletin to airlines advising pilots how to avoid erroneous cockpit readings from the angle of attack sensors based on their involvement in the preliminary investigation to that date. On the 15th of November, Boeing stock had slid over 8% that week as concerns were growing regarding the cause of the Lion Air incident was a Boeing design flaw or poor pilot training instructions. That day, the first lawsuit against Boeing was raised by the parents of Rio Nada Putrama, who died in the crash for an alleged unsafe design of the MAX 8 aircraft. 
On the 14th of January 2019, the cockpit voice recorder was finally recovered. It was found buried under 8 metres or 26 feet of mud, approximately half a kilometre or 550 yards from the majority of the wreckage. Boeing Commercial Airplanes was operating at a profit on Q2 2018 before the incident of $1.8 billion US dollars, and despite a reasonable Q1 of 2019 with a 9% reduction in revenue, Q2 2019 Boeing posted a $2.9 billion loss, with Q3 2019 stabilising somewhat with a $40 million US loss in the airline division. The total cost to Boeing due to the 737 MAX continues to climb, though, at late October 2019, the estimated total cost to Boeing due to the 737 MAX incidents is estimated at $9.2 billion US dollars. Let's talk a little bit about the fallout from Ethiopian Air Flight 302, though not the topic of this specific episode. Within 24 hours of the Ethiopian Air Flight 302 incident, China, Indonesia and Ethiopia all grounded all 737 MAX aircraft in their countries with the United Kingdom, Australia, Poland and Singapore following the next day, followed by the European Union shortly after that. It wasn't until Wednesday, the 13th of March 2019, that the 737 MAX was grounded finally in the United States, after 43 other countries had already done so. On the 18th of March 2019, the Department of Justice's fraud section opened a criminal investigation into the development and certification of the Boeing 737 MAX by the FAA and Boeing. On the 7th of May 2019, the U.S. Department of Transportation appointed a new committee to review the FAA's process for certifying the Boeing 737 MAX 8. On the 26th of June 2019, the FAA provided an emailed statement, and I quote, The FAA recently found a potential risk that Boeing must mitigate, end quote. That was found during their recertification testing of MCAS on the 737 MAX. They continued, and I quote, The implication is that this is different software in a different control computer that's presenting similar symptoms, end quote, but that it would not, but it was not related to MCAS, to which Boeing responded that they agreed with the FAA's findings and would investigate further. On the 26th of September 2019, the National Transport Safety Board issued seven safety recommendations to the Federal Aviation Administration, calling upon the agency to address concerns about how multiple alerts and indications are considered when making assumptions as part of design safety assessments. Southwest Airlines filed a lawsuit against Boeing in October 2019 seeking damages relating to their fleet of 34 737 MAX aircraft, including $100 million in lost income for the airline and its pilots. On the 16th of December 2019, Boeing announced it would temporarily suspend all construction of the 737 MAX aircraft starting January 2020. At the end of 2019, Boeing had about 400 737 MAXs in the hands of customers globally, with 400 more constructed and in Boeing holding facilities around the world. On the 23rd of December 2019, Boeing published a press release stating that Dennis Meilenberg had resigned from his positions as Chief Executive Officer and Board Director effective immediately, to be replaced by David Calhoun, the, at the time, Chairman of the Board of Directors at Boeing. On the 21st of January 2020, Boeing published a press release stating, we are currently estimating that the ungrounding of the 737 MAX will begin during mid-2020 citing the still undefined retraining requirements and rigorous scrutiny being applied to the design globally as key reasons for the prolonged delay. So what do we conclude from all of this? Between flights 610 and 302, a total of 346 people died in similar circumstances on practically new aircraft from the same manufacturer, the same model, and whilst it's possible that the root causes of each incident were independent, it's extremely unlikely. The 737 MAX design has some clear deficiencies and the method used for determining the angle of attack should be upgraded to include sensor voting before being utilised by MCAS. Additionally, there needs to be a dedicated MCAS cutout or disable switch that still allows manual electric trim commands from the pilots at a minimum. I think that aviation authorities around the world need to reconsider what constitutes a genuine derivative design and when grandfathering provisions should and should not apply as it encourages aircraft manufacturers to make incremental changes to an aircraft's design and avoid a full regression test of all of the impacted aspects of those changes. 
as evidenced by the requalification of MCAS by the FAA following the grounding of the 737 MAX, there was at least one additional flight control computer control-related issue they found that had nothing to do with MCAS. And what worries me is what else might they find? Were they to do a complete requalification of the 737 MAX from end to end? Certainly, Boeing, and to a lesser extent the FAA, for less than ideal oversight of Boeing's qualification of the 737 MAX, have to shoulder most of the responsibility for these events. If you're an engineer or designer working in those spaces, and you're asked to evaluate the consequences and classify them, be honest and fair when you do that. In the case of MCAS, they used probability upon probability to push their classification outside of the requirement for a full FAMIA or even FTA. The risk is the risk, and the classification should stand on its own merits. And if there's any doubt, it shouldn't be watered down. We should do the analysis and add the redundancy if that's what the analysis says we should do. Having said all of that, I also think that the pilots and the engineers in Lion Air had some poorly set priorities in terms of allowing the plane to fly again after it had experienced so many problems in the days leading up to the incident. Flight LNI-043, return from Denpasar to Jakarta, flew with a stick shaker activating for most of the trip. But when the handover report was given to the engineer on the ground, it was missing those key details like the stick shaker being on and several other details too. A concerned engineer on the ground would have looked through all the records and found that this was a recurring problem. The pilots are flying on manual trim consistently, and stick shaker operating is a big red flag, so ground that plane until you can determine exactly what's causing the problem. If they weren't sure to be safe, they should ground the plane, and if they can't diagnose it amongst themselves, then contact the manufacturer for guidance. Surely there were spare planes that they could have used, and if not, cancelling flights is a thing. You can do that. The passengers would still be alive and they'll get over it. In a different chain of events, one would hope that concerns like with stick shaker activation and errors on the AOA sensors and MCAS operation, if they were passed on to Boeing by enough customers using the 737 MAX, that eventually would have raised alarm bells within Boeing and triggered a warning notice or an advisory to end users of the 737 MAX while Boeing investigated further. But this isn't what happened. So... I guess we'll never know. Again, we come back to training and how critical it is. And in this regard, Boeing put their sales pitch ahead of their customers' safety, thinking that MCAS would solve their training gap. Had they added it to their manuals, trained the pilots, or even partly or wholly funded a retraining program, Boeing wouldn't have lost that much money in the grand scheme of things. As we have seen with the Concorde, Even with fixes and marketing and reinforcement, after the loss of a single Concorde, public faith in an aircraft's design, once it's lost, is extremely difficult to regain it. The previously mentioned de Havilland Comet DH-106 suffered a similar fate too. Boeing's design choices and assumptions and subsequent sales pitch to airlines about the 737 MAX have cost hundreds of people their lives and they are facing multi-billion dollar losses. Boeing are at risk of losing the breadwinner of their aircraft range and potentially their aircraft business if they can't fix it and restore some confidence in their product and their brand. Designing and building an aircraft is a very high-risk business, and to do it well, you can't cut corners and you can't cut costs. Boeing built up a reputation with decades of solid engineering practice and reliable designs, but it doesn't take much corner cutting, pushing the limits just a little bit too far to shatter that completely. To me, redundancy isn't a cost. It's insurance against failure and provides safety and availability. If you're ever in a room where people say, if it's in this category, then we don't need to do such and such, stop there because you're thinking about it back to front. Do not make that mistake. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can by becoming a premium subscriber. You can find details at engineer.network slash causality with a thank you to all of our patrons and premium subscribers and a special thank you to our Patreon silver producers, John Whitlow, Joseph Antonio, Kevin Kosh, and Shane O'Neill. 
And an extra special thank you to our Patreon Gold producer, known only as R. Premium subscribers and patrons have access to early release, high-quality ad-free episodes, as well as bonus episodes, and to Causality Explored. You can do this via Patreon, or if you prefer, via our website. Visit engineered.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Of course, there's lots of other ways you can help, like favoriting this episode in your podcast player app or sharing the episode or the show with your friends or via social. Some podcast players let you share audio clips of episodes, so if you have a favorite segment, feel free to share that too. All these things can help others discover the show and can make a big difference too. Causality is heavily researched, and all links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes, and you can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. You can follow me on the Fediverse at Chigi at engineered.space, on Twitter at John Chigi, or one word, or the network at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>